0: Well, hello, everybody. Whether you are with us online today, whether you are with us in person in the live auditorium, or maybe this is finding you in the classic venue or even on the Moon campus, we're grateful that we are one congregation that can meet together in all of these different places and all work together toward the purposes that God has called us to here at Pathway. And one of those is to be diligent about His Word, and so I'm looking forward to taking us into it here together with you today. Have you ever tried to do a good deed for someone, and even though you're trying to help them to make things better for them, you just sort of seem to make things worse Ever done that? That's happened to me more than once. It happened to me on a vacation that I was on with my family, with my kids when they were younger. And uh, we were in Colorado. And I loved the Rocky Mountains and went there many, many times as a kid. And there was a trail that I remembered liking quite a bit. And so when our family was out there in the vicinity, we decided we'd go ahead and, and hike this trail. And so it was a trail that, of course, you know, in the, in the Rocky Mountains, um, that there are all sorts of different levels and all sorts of different elevation. Well, this was called... The Chipmunk Trail, or something kind of innocuous like that. And so it seemed pretty safe, and I kind of remembered it to be that. But there's always elevation when you're hiking a mountain trail. And this particular one, there was a parking lot at the top of the trail, and the trail basically went down the mountain, and then there was a parking lot at the bottom. And so what you would do on the trail is you'd park, and we chose to start at the top. We were going to go down to the bottom and then come back up, and it'd be a great Great little hike. And so we started out on that and we'd made it about a third of the way I'd say down this trail. The whole trail was maybe about a, about a mile in one direction. And, and so we'd made it about a third of the way and I realized that this trail was steeper than I'd remembered and that it wasn't going to be a good scenario for the family with the little kids to hike all the way down and then get to the bottom and have to turn around and hike all the way back up. I knew that wasn't going to work, so I came up with a different plan. I said, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't you guys, Carolyn, and you and the girls, why don't you just continue to walk down the trail and I'll go back up to the car and I'll get it and I'll drive it around to the bottom of the trail and that way you only have to hike it one direction. That'll be perfect. And so what could possibly go wrong? So that's what we do. So Carol and the girls, they continue to go on down. I run up to the top. I wanted to make it as fast as possible so I could walk and meet them as far up the trail and walk down with them as I could. And I, and I rush down to the bottom with the car and I start my way back up the trail. And as I start walking or running actually back up this trail, I notice some signs that I didn't notice when I started at the top of the trail, there were signs at the bottom that I saw, and these were signs that alarmed me a little bit, signs like bear country, and beware of mountain lions, and so I went, got back in the car, and waited for them to come on down. No, I didn't do that. I, I went that much faster up the trail to find them, so that I might you know, spare them any fear that they might be having just so I could protect them as a father, would, father and husband would want to do. And so I'm making my way back up the trail, and I'm not finding them where I think they ought to be. You know, I had in my mind about how far down the trail they should have gotten by there, and I thought, well, maybe they're just going a little slower than I thought. Either that or they've been eaten by a bear. I mean, these are the things that were going through my mind. And so I called out to them, and no answer, and I tried to call them on the cell, and there's no reception. And so now I'm scurrying up the trail, and and I get rather alarmed by something that I see. Because I noticed that I had now made it to a part of the trail that I'd already been on. Which means that I made it all the way past where they would have had to be. So something had to happen because they didn't pass me on the way down the trail. And I thought, well, all right, all right, get a hold of yourself. Maybe something, ha- they decided, maybe we had a miscommunication. they decided to hike back up to the top of the trail. And so I ran back up to the top, and they weren't there. And I thought, okay, well, the, the, the next most logical spot, I suppose, is down at the bottom. If only I had a car to drive down there. <laughs> but I'd already driven the car down there. And so I started running down the trail to find them calling out on my way down the trail, no answer, don't see them, and I'm just scurrying down to the bottom, and I'm not seeing anything other than signs about bears. And it turned out that navigating that mountain trail was not quite as straightforward as I thought that it was going to be. I thought it was going to be pretty simple. I go to the bottom, I get on the trail, and the trail is going to lead me right to where I need to go. It didn't seem to work out that way for me. And I bring that up because that's exactly the way that it works out for us in relationship to, or oftentimes works out for us in relationship to something that I want to talk to you about here today. A passage of Scripture that we have come to that's important that we would come to understand. And there's another path that we're going to be looking at and thinking about today that is very much oftentimes happens that same way. This path we're going to be talking about today is the path of repentance. Because even though we might get ourselves to the place where we start down the path of repentance, the fact is that it doesn't always take us where we think we are going or where we think we need to go and so we're going to think about that some today and this is really important because there are times for all of us when we're going to sense the need to repent. Now, we don't always know where that comes from and when it comes we don't always know what to do with it or even how to do it, but we'll know for sure that it is there. You see, we all have this internal compass that points in the direction of righteousness. The reason that we all have it is because we've been made in God's image, and God ultimately is the one who is perfectly righteous, and because of his presence, his spirit within us, as well as the fact that we've been made in his image, we naturally have a compass that points us in that direction. And so when we're not going in that direction, we know that there's something wrong. We know that something has to be done about that. So regardless of how long it might be that we've had our backs turned on God or we've turned away from the church, eventually we're going to feel that urge. And the question is, what are we going to do when that comes upon us? For many of us, oftentimes what we have done, we've all done this, is we've just sort of tried to ignore it or we've tried to Push it away, or we've tried not to pay any attention to it because we don't want to be confronted with the sin and the need for repentance. But Paul brings us out and helps us to understand what the path of repentance would look like. So I invite you to go ahead and turn to our passage for today, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to look at almost this whole chapter. We're going to start in verse 2 and go to the end of the chapter. If you're not familiar with the Bible, my uh, encouragement to you would be to go to the table of contents at the beginning, just like any other book, and uh, you can find the page number there. Just find Second Corinthians and then flip your way forward through the chapters, and you'll get to 7. Or if you're using an online Bible, you can just search it there. You'll find your way there. Even if you don't have a Bible app, you could just Google it that passage, and you'll find it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2, is where we'll be today. And in our passage, the Apostle Paul addresses some people who were in need of taking the step of repentance themselves. And as he writes to them, he gives some characteristics that we're going to find and discover are actually universal. And so the things that he writes to this church in Corinth, he just as well is writing to this church today. Pathway Church in its different forms and its different services and what have you. And what he's going to talk to us about is this path of repentance. Now, before we dig into the specific steps that Paul addresses, we learn something about the actual or a a very important attitude that comes along with repentance if it's going to be done well. And when we think about repentance, oftentimes we don't We don't start with this sort of a preface, but it's very important because the text makes it clear, and it's only because we're marching our way verse by verse through this letter that we're actually forced to consider this broader picture of what repentance really looks like. We don't just jump right into the the steps of it. We consider how it starts and what Paul's attitude is in it all, and we see that as chapter 2, verse 7 begins here, excuse me, chapter 7, verse 2. Take a look at that. Here's what he writes. says, make room for us in your heart. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. We would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. We've previously seen that there were some problems between Paul and the church in Corinth. They headed out for him, and they were opposing him, and they were opposing his message. And he needed to go to them. He needed to write to them to set matters straight. And that's what this letter is really ultimately about. And what we saw last week is that Paul demonstrates an amazing sort of grace toward them. Even though they're calling him out, even though they're opposing him, even though they're standing against him, Paul doesn't turn his back on them. He doesn't keep them at arm's length. What we talked about last week is that he approaches them with no reservations. He embraces them even though they're not treating him very well. And we see that same sort of mindset in added and heart right here in Paul in this passage as well. So even though Paul has the right to probably come down on them, he takes a different approach. He, He demonstrates a different attitude in his mind, and the attitude is this. The key attitude when it comes to the path of repentance is compassion. Now, this is going to probably sound a little bit unusual or maybe contradictory to us as we just think of it on the surface, but stick with me and stick with what it says here. The attitude is compassion. This is huge when it comes to repentance, all right? This alone is worth the price of admission, although I know you didn't pay anything to get in. This is worth more than the price of admission, what he's talking about here. This whole attitude and understanding compassion is a part of repentance. So often what we feel when we're wronged is that we have an opposition to the other person we're at odds with that other person we oftentimes allow a different sort of attitude to rise up maybe it's hurt maybe it's anger maybe it's harshness that comes over us between us and the other person maybe it's an animosity that is developed between us and them and when we allow those sorts of feelings to rise up in us what's happening is that we're actually poisoning our own spirit to the point where we're adding additional hurdles that are going to need to be gotten over in order to have any sort of harmony that is going to exist between us and the other person, even if that other person would come and they'd apologize, even if they would be desiring to fix the issue because we've allowed ourselves to push them away, creating this additional chasm between us and them, because we've allowed our spirit to get poisoned because of the circumstances that happened, what's happening is that even if they should come to us, it's going to be incredibly difficult for us to overcome the things that we've added onto the hurt itself in order to actually experience any sort of harmony or any sort of reconciliation between ourselves and them. Compassion takes us in exactly a different direction. It helps us to overcome that. It takes all of that out of the way. It doesn't ignore the issues. It doesn't ignore the wrongs. I'm not saying that you should just pretend nothing happened. No, you should. You need to walk through the heart of whatever the circumstance is, but it demonstrates a genuine desire for healing to take place. It even offers a hand toward healing. What we're saying is, even as I approach you with this, or even as we're at odds with one another, even as I have what I have to say to you, I'm going to do it with a heart of compassion because my desire is that we would be restored and relation relationship rather than I just desired that I would get my hunk of flesh or that I would get out of this what's going to make me feel better because of the way you hurt me I'm going to hurt you it's not what Paul does these people that we might say he had every right to treat that way he doesn't and it sets up the possibility for restoration and reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. Then as Paul goes on, we see that same attitude of compassion on display, only this time it's not on the part of the one who was offended, but rather on the part of the ones who've done the offending, or in this case, the the church there in Corinth. Here's what Paul writes beginning in verse 5. You can see it in them too as we get toward the end of this little section. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. I'll tell you what that's about in a second. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, now listen to this, but also by the comfort you had given him. These are the people who were standing against Paul. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than Ever. You hear that? This is on the part, not just of Paul, he's expressing his compassion toward them, but the people who had actually been the ones doing the offending, they're expressing compassion as well. Now, just a bit of the backstory here. After Paul had planted the church in Corinth and he was there for a while, now he leaves the church and things start to fall off the rails. And so Paul actually makes a visit back to Corinth, tries to straighten things out. That goes kind of okay, but not as well as it could. And then he ultimately sends this letter to them, Not just Second Corinthians, but also this letter that's referred to as the severe letter, all right? It's still written with compassion, but it's kind of pointed because he has to say some things pretty plainly to them and try to get them on the path. And he's very concerned about the fact that he's written the letter in this sort of spirit, in this sort of, you know, pointedness. And so he actually sends Titus to go to Corinth to find out how the people are doing to find out how they've received this letter, to find out what they're feeling, if they've really been hurt and, and uh, you know, pushed away by what's going on. And so he sends Titus, and then Paul and Titus had this plan that they were going to meet up in Troas, and T- Titus would give Paul the report on what had happened in Corinth. The problem was Titus never shows up in Troas. Paul's there. He's doing ministry, waiting for Titus, and now he's getting really worried. He's worried about Titus, and he's also anxious to find out what's going on in Corinth. Has the letter been too harsh? All of that sort of thing, and so Paul hears that Titus has left Corinth, and he's now in Macedonia, which is basically northern Greece. Um, Corinth is in southern Greece, so if you can kind of get that pictured, and then Troas would be on the other side of the Aegean Sea, kind of near Ephesus over Turkey. If you know your geography, you kind of have a sense of that. So Paul leaves Troas and a powerful work that he's doing there to go find Titus, which he does in Macedonia. And when he's there, he's super excited to find Titus just because he loves him. He's a brother in the faith. And also because he gets a good report from Titus about how things are going in Corinth and how they've received the letter that he has sent and how they've been willing to Change their own attitude and their own heart because of what they have received see these people they've responded to this pointed letter with this compassion of their own yes they've been corrected by Paul but they don't go moping around they don't go saying oh man you've been so mean to us by telling us these things we had to change and so we now have this against you they're saying basically you know what we can humble ourselves because you're right And because they're willing to do that, they're willing to soften their heart in return. And so even though there's this tension that could very well divide them forever, and the sort of tension that divides us from people sometimes forever because we insist on going down those roads, all of that is diffused because of this attitude of compassion. We have this knee-jerk reaction. Somebody calls us out, somebody tells us something that maybe we ought to change or we ought to think about, and we get defensive. That's not happening here, and it's leading them to relationship. This is such an important lesson for us to learn. When we find ourselves there in that sort of situation so often this sort of compassion is missing we're often recli- are inclined to rehearse our hurts and we're often inclined to talk to somebody else about it and not the other per- not the person involved or to tweet about it or or something but not extend compassion and as a result we don't experience healing and in reconciliation so how do you know what the motive is that you're operating out of a good question. Assess your level of compassion. Wherever you're experiencing some sort of tension between yourself and someone else, ask yourself, am I approaching that person in that situation with compassion toward them, or am I so worked up about the situation that I have erected a wall and I don't want anything to do with them. The last thing I want to do is show compassion to them. And you can pretty much count on the fact that you're always going to be at odds and that you're never going to experience the reconciliation that God would have you to experience in every relationship. So do the evaluation of what's going on in your own heart, in your own relationships. Is there somewhere where you need to start exercising compassion towards someone else. If you're wanting to work your way through the path of repentance, you're going to have to start here. You're going to have to start here, because even if you try to make it right with God, that's not necessarily going to make it right with someone else. So with that as sort of the foundation and the underlying premise, then let's go ahead and take a look quickly at three different aspects or three different steps to repentance, all right, on this path of repentance. The first of them is this. It's tough love. Now, we tend to think, of oh, tough love, that's kind of a relatively recent thing that we talk about, psychologists tell us about. Paul was doing this 2,000 years ago, all right? Take a look at it. Verse 8 says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by Here again, Paul's talking about that severe letter, and he kind of regretted sending it because he knew that it was kind of painful to receive, but he's not so sorry that he didn't send it because he's now rejoicing in the fact that it did its work, right? That's what tough love can do. This fellowship has not been broken, it's actually been restored with him, and more importantly with God. And he did so out of love. That's been his motivation in writing this this letter of 2 Corinthians to them all the way along. And uh, just to remind you of that, we can look all the way back at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, and we saw this when we went through in chapter 2, He talks about the spirit that he has toward them, and we can see the same thing on display all the way back there. Back in chapter 2 and verse 4, he wrote, "'For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you.'" Yes, Paul knew that his letter was going to sting and that there was a risk of them pushing him away in the process, but it was worth it because he knew the healing that it could bring and the healing that very much was necessary. And so he was willing to write this letter with this tough love. So oftentimes, we kind of get in this place where it's like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to say what needs to be said to this person because I just, I just care too much about them. I don't want to hurt them. But what we need to understand is, is when we refuse to point out sin in somebody else's life that is so obvious to us, it's not demonstrating the greatness of our love. It's demonstrating the greatness of the lack of our love because we're allowing our own fear to overwhelm any love that we might otherwise feel. So he says there's this, this tough love that needs to be carried out. It's a key step on the path to repentance. Another key step, secondly, is good grief. <laughs> this has nothing to do with Charlie Brown, in case you're wondering. Good grief. Whenever you come face to face with your sin, whether that is from someone confronting you about it or whether it's when your own conscience is pricked by the, by the Spirit of God in you. It's going to prompt a reaction, and there are two primary reactions that Paul talks about here in this passage. The first of them is good grief, and the second one is bad grief. Now, those aren't the words he uses. He calls them godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. He brings them up in verse 10, where he writes, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, normally we think of sorrow as something that we'd rather avoid altogether, but Paul tells us here when it comes to sin and repentance, sorrow is good. You should feel it. Sorrow is essential. It's good grief, and the reason that we want to experience good sorrow, godly sorrow, when we have sinned is because it's a clear indication that we're feeling the effects of the sin, that it's penetrating our shell that can be so hard and can just sort of resist the fact that sin is present and our willingness to open ourselves up to it and deal with it and actually change. Paul says it actually leads to salvation, which doesn't mean that He's talking about eternal life if you, you know, repent or that that sort of godly sorrow is as soon as you feel that, then all of a sudden you're a believer in Christ. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that it's salvation from the negative effects of living with unrepentant sin in our lives. And if you've done that, eventually you come to feel that and experience it. And as we continue on in it, it just kind of continues to compound more and more. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, really isn't sorrow at all. It might be guilt feelings. It might be that you feel some sort of regret because of the things that you've done or the things that you haven't done, but it doesn't lead you to change. Worldly sorrow can also be denial. It can be denying that that thing is present in your life, that that problem exists, that you've done those things or haven't done those other things. It could be anger. It could be lashing out at somebody who's brought this to your attention, that something's going on in your life that really should be dealt with. It could be any of those things. Paul actually says that worldly sorrow results in death. Now, he's probably not talking about literal death Though it's possible, depending on what that sin is that's present in your life, that it could put your life in jeopardy. But more than that, he's thinking about the death of your own spiritual growth. If you don't find that, you're not going to be growing spiritually. If you don't lean into repentance, you're not going to thrive in terms of truth, being present and working in your life. It'll be the death of character. It'll be the death of friendships and other relationships, quite likely. The difference between the two can be pretty well illustrated by two of Jesus' disciples, by Peter and Judas. Both of them denied Jesus. Peter denied Jesus there shortly after Jesus was arrested, and they approached Peter, and they said, you are one of those people that follow Jesus. He's like, no, I'm not. He denies Jesus. Judas denies Jesus when he betrays him over to the authorities with the 30 pieces of silver. Now, both of them feel remorse. Peter feels remorse, and it actually leads him to repentance. And because of the repentance, there's the restoration of the perfect relationship together with Jesus. Judas also feels remorse, but it only leads him to regret and he goes out, and he hangs himself. Two very different outcomes, both feeling remorse. Judas could have repented, but he doesn't. One is worldly sorrow that doesn't ultimately lead to any change, Judas. One is godly sorrow, which leads to a transformation of what's going on in Peter's heart, and the confession that follows, and the repentance that comes and the forgiveness that comes along with it. Paul goes on to point out more of what good grief produces. If you look at verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. He's celebrating the Corinthians and how they've changed. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Godly sorrow lights the fire of restoration in your soul. It leads to repentance, not merely regret. This is so important to understand, because sometimes we confuse the two. It leads to godly sorrow, leads to repentance, not just to regret. And how do you know the difference whether you are leaning into repentance or just regret? Seems a pretty important question to ask. Well, we can evaluate that the same way that Paul did with the Corinthians there in verse 11, by what it produces. Because repentance is ultimately an action, not just a feeling. So important we get this. Repentance is not just a feeling that comes over us, where we feel bad, where we feel regret. Repentance isn't just a prayer. Repentance is a prayer followed by an action. Repentance means to turn around. It means to go a different direction It means the thing that needs to be repented of needs to be set aside and we need to do the opposite, which is better. But until we take the step of action, we really haven't repented. It's a vital step on the process. Good grief that leads to action. Then there's one more vital step. On the path to repentance. You've got that tough love, which sometimes we take to others, but we need to be willing to receive from others that puts us on the path. Perhaps that's the way we get, it on, get on it in, in the first place. Good grief or godly sorrow that rises up in this sort of desire to respond and to act appropriately, and then it leads to the final step, which is joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. As we were saying a moment ago, genuine repentance is always connected to a changed heart and changed behavior. Paul sees that in the Corinthians. Look at verse 13. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, like when he comes and meets up with Paul again, because his spirit had been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me, But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. That's great. Paul is saying that there has definitely been a change in the behavior of the church in Corinth. There is this new and and joyful obedience springing up from them, and it demonstrates that their repentance is real because they have made the necessary changes in their attitudes and in their actions. There's something else that just jumps out of that little section that's very interesting to me. It's actually before Paul gets word of how the Corinthians have responded to Titus and to him, that Paul is bragging about the Corinthians to Titus. Did you catch that? Before he ever learns how they responded, Paul says, these Corinthians, they're great. They're awesome, you're gonna love them. They've got, they're people of character, they're going to respond well. Sometimes repentance and that heart of compassion, that attitude of compassion, actually sets another person up to respond well. It's kind of like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The way that we treat and the expectations that we have on somebody else are going to sort of be naturally expressed, and they have the opportunity to respond fully and appropriately. And that's actually what happens right here. That's pretty powerful. He's bragging about, you ever brag about something or, or someone to somebody else? And then you're kind of like, oh, I hope that those people live up to the buildup I gave to it. You ever done that? There's an occasion we were with the youth group, and we were traveling out to the southwestern United States, and, and it would take us through Arizona, and so, because I had been to the Grand Canyon before, and because we were gonna be going there, I was just talking it up one side and down the other. I mean, I was talking about its beauty, how it was just so spectacular, and, and the majesty, and the grandeur of it all. And when you see it, you're just going to be absolutely amazed. And so people were talking about, man, I can't wait to get to the Grand Canyon. And I'm like, oh, I hope it lives up to the, the build-up I'm giving it for everybody. And I thought it probably would, except maybe for this one woman who was on the trip. She was one of the chaperones. And she was one of those sort of negative sort of people. You know, some of those. And like everything was wrong. And even on the trip, when we were driving, I was like, well, the van is too hot and and the trip is too long and the beds were too hard and the food is too awful. Like if there was anything, she was going to be negative about it. And so I thought, well, what's gonna happen when we get to the Grand Canyon? And she sees that and, and we got there and we all kind of as a team walked up to that South Rim where you get the most spectacular view of the whole thing. And I heard her over my shoulder say to somebody, I can't believe we drove all this way to see a hole in the ground. (laughs) If you've been there, you know how ridiculous a statement that is. Well, I had built it up and everybody seemed to pretty much agree with the the buildup except for this woman. She didn't seem to. Now, thankfully for Paul, the Corinthians lived up to the billing that he had given to them. And it's a beautiful thing to See as they responded in that way with this joyful obedience and it brought joy to both Titus and Paul in return. And that's what repentance always does. It spreads the joy around and relationships are restored and righteousness is advanced. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a path to get there. When I got down to the bottom of the path there in Colorado. Running my way down, I I wasn't believing that I was going to see Carolyn and the girls there because I would have seen them on the path. Something else had to happen, but I figured there'd probably be a ranger down there and, and we could do what we needed to do to try to figure all of this out. And so I got down to the bottom and much to my surprise, there they were. They were fine. Just as concerned about me as I had been about them and I wanted to know, it's like, well, why didn't you just come down the trail like we said you were going to do? They said, we did. They said, why didn't you just come up the trail like you said you were gonna do? I said, I did. It was about that point that we saw this big board, big sign. Had a map of the Chippy Trail on it. And you could see it had an interesting feature. Because about halfway down, it took this big semicircle over to this side. And right when it took that little jog off, there was another big semicircle that went over to this side. And then it met up just a little bit before the end of the trail. Of course, Carolyn had come down the one side, not knowing there was another side, and I'd come up the opposite side, not knowing that there was another side. And so we passed on the trail, but hundreds of yards apart. See, it turned out that even though it appeared that we were on the right trail, and we were, that just because we made it onto the trail didn't mean that we were going to experience everything that the trail had to offer or that it would naturally lead us to a full completion of what the goal was on the path. That's how it is here. Just because we get onto the path of repentance doesn't automatically mean that it's accomplished. Just because we get to the place where we feel some sense of regret for something that we've done, that's not repentance, that's regret. And if we just leave it there, we're going to find ourselves right back in the same boat again. And it may be that you find yourself in a place, in a sin that you've been trying to defeat for a long time, and sometimes you feel bad about it, really bad about it, but never beyond the realm of regret or remorse. And so we deal with it more like Judas than like Peter. Instead, we need to take the path of repentance all the way to the end with an open spirit of compassion toward someone who might have brought it to us, toward God. Not not that we're angry at God because this thing is present in my life, but rather... If it's the Spirit of God that brought us to us with an openness of spirit and heart and attitude, attitude of compassion is where it starts, being willing to receive the tough love that might have brought it to the surface instead of pushing the person away, instead of saying, well, I can find something wrong in their life, and because they've got something wrong in their life, I don't have to consider the thing that they see wrong in my life. With good grief... Godly sorrow that really brings us to the place where we're on our knees and we're ready to do something about it, and then ending the path with this joyful obedience, choosing to do the thing that we're called to do, the thing that we know that God would have for us, the thing that has been pricking our conscience to begin with, not just even in prayer, but in action. So, how do we get there? Well, it begins by an openness of spirit and an openness of heart. And before we even get out of our seats or up from our chairs or up from our sofa or wherever we're listening to this today, I want us just to have a few moments with God just on our own. In silence, to talk to God, to listen to God. Friends, with an open spirit, understanding that dealing with the circumstance is a path to restoration and reconciliation in the place that ultimately we want and need to be. So, I'm going to give us just a little bit of time in silence. This is just your opportunity to do your own business with God, Pray and ask God to reveal to you whatever it is that He wants to say. And it could very well be that you already know the answer to that question because He's already prompted you. And pray that prayer, whatever it's required of you, to start to move down that road with an equal commitment, knowing that it's not just about the prayer. It's what happens when you get up from your seat and you walk out if you need to turn a different direction. Let's just take a little bit of time, just alone, with God. Take your time. Our Father, You know exactly where all of us are in spirit and heart, the degree of joyful obedience that we're living in. Lord, we all get to the place where repentance is necessary. It's a part of who we are because of the sin that is present in us. But instead of pretending that we ought to be better than that, and so I'm not going to deal with it because maybe if I don't, it doesn't mean that it's there. Instead of resisting the tough love that comes our direction, whether that be from another person, from a spouse, from a parent, or from your spirit, that we'd have an openness of heart, that we'd recognize that it's all for our benefit, and so that we should, instead of having angst in our spirit, we should have compassion, appreciation, Humility, understanding that this is the thing that's going to get me to the place I ultimately need to be. So, Lord, soften our spirit, soften our heart. Pray that there would be a godly sorrow that would come over us, that would be enough to light the fire to actually do something, and that we ultimately will end in this step of joyful obedience. Lord, that's where you desire us to be, and I know that in our heart of hearts, that's where we would desire to be. And Lord, for the one who's just battling inside about whether or not they can do that, I just pray that you'd break through. And for all those who've made the commitment in these moments that I'm going to take those steps, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to walk the path of repentance all the way to the end. Pray that you'd give us the courage to do what's necessary. Lord, we want to walk in harmony and unity with you. And we know that this is the path. Help us to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.